Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. I may not believe in many things for certain, but I do believe in the spirit of Christmas. And I also believe that I'm related to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> it's hard to imagine Christmas without Rudolph. And it's almost impossible to imagine this reindeer with any other name. Because names matter. They help define us, define how others see us. When I look back on my family tree, I can tell a lot just by looking at the names. On my mother's side of the family, there are Irish ones, Trainers, Fitzgeralds, O'Connors, McAvoys. They're the names of post-famine emigrants who settled in what is now Grant County in the state of Wisconsin, USA. So prevalent were Irish names such as these that the area became known as Irish Ridge. And today, more than a century and a half later, it still is, because names last. There were also first names, Johns, Bernadettes, Elizabeths, Michaels, whose repetition through generations spoke of honoring parents and grandparents, invisible hands across the decades, spanning an ocean. On my father's side, names such as Brokop, Gamulka, Rendak, Klimek, and Soroka tell of emigration to Chicago from parts of what is now Poland but was then German East Prussia, or the Kingdom of Galicia in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The first names on this side of the family include Wilhelmina, born the year Wilhelm I was crowned Emperor of Germany, Paulina, Vladislaw, Adalbartus, Maria, and Petrus. But of all the names in my family tree, there's one that stands out more than any other, because that is the name of a reindeer. <laughs> in 1904, my great-grandparents, Vladislaw Rendak and Valeria Klimak, a woman I would know as a child as Grandma Bush, emigrated from just south of Krakow. They settled in Chicago's 15th Ward, which then had the largest concentration of Polish people in the world outside of Europe. They married in 1907, and then had five children, including my grandmother, Charlotte, and her younger brother, who was named Rudolph. In 1939, my great-uncle Rudolph was 29 years old and worked as a supervisor in the advertising section of Montgomery Ward Department Store in Chicago. That year, an advertising copywriter and failed novelist by the name of Bob May was asked to write a Christmas story which would be printed and handed out to the store's festive shoppers. May wrote about a red-nosed reindeer who was teased for being different, but whose unique physical characteristic, a shiny nose, would save Christmas by guiding Santa through the fog to deliver all the presents. May drew inspiration for his story from his own experiences of being an outsider as a child. 
The story was set in weather that was inspired by his office view over a wintry Lake Michigan. But he never said where he got the name from. We do know that he labored over the choice. In a carefully preserved manuscript held in a collection in Dartmouth College, May's handwritten list of names includes Rodney, Roderick, Romeo, and Rollo. Only two on the list are circled, Reginald and Rudolph. According to some sources, the executives at Montgomery Ward only approved May's story after the reindeer was called Rudolph. There was just something in that name that worked. But according to my great uncle, Rudolph, the reason the name was on the list was obvious. He and Bob May were work colleagues. As far as he was concerned, the reindeer was named after him. <laughs> uncle Rudolph didn't make much of his connection to the famous Christmas story. It just became a matter of family fact, a story told to visitors. My great uncle professed no backstory, claimed no royalties, and no, he didn't have a shiny nose. <laughs> he said May just liked his name and used it. Uncle Rudolph's assertion is backed up to an extent by some figures, because Rudolph was a far from popular name at the time. Of 30 million boys, whose names were registered at birth in all of America between 1900 and the publication of May's story in 1939, just 18,000, that's 0.06%, were called Rudolph. And an unpopular name for an unpopular reindeer does make sense. Surely due in no small part to the perfect choice of name, the story was phenomenally successful. Montgomery Ward distributed six million copies of Rudolph. May's story was later turned into an even more successful song, first recorded by Jean Autry in 1947, and afterwards covered by the likes of Ella Fitzgerald, Dean Martin, Bing Crosby, John Denver, and Dolly Parton. Rudolph became such a central Christmas character that it seems hard to believe he started life in the advertising room of a Midwest department store. But my family has always been proud that over 80 years ago, on a fateful Christmas Eve, Santa Claus, in desperation, turned to a shiny-nosed reindeer named after my great-uncle, Rudolf Rendak, to guide his sleigh so that he could bring presents to the children of the world. And, as the song says, he did go down in history. <laughs> Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer Had a very shiny nose And if you ever saw him You would even say it glows all of the other reindeer Used to laugh and call him name They never let poor Rudolph Join in any reindeer game
The inconvenience of a December birthday, especially one that falls during the Christmas holidays. Expensive and sometimes annoying for loved ones, occasionally disappointing for the birthday girl or boy. The joint Christmas birthday presents, the cast-offs, the unwanted Mars bar my sister gave me one year when we were kids, the pack of three perfume soaps from my best friend, that when I held it up to the light, I could see the words 2M from Auntie J traced on the wrapping paper. <laughs> Money really was too tight to mention back in the 80s, so all gifts, even the re-gifts, were gladly received. When I was six, I asked for a Tiny Tears doll and pram from Santa. To my delight, they were both sitting under the tree on Christmas morning. And with a big chuffed head on me, I joined my pal Nicola as we proudly walked the cobblestone streets of Stony Batter, playing mammies to the beautiful dolls with curly blonde hair that both cried and weed. <laughs> my mom had explained that Santa had brought the doll, but the pram was my birthday present, gifted five days early. But Nicola got her doll and pram from Santa, so Mam must have got it wrong. And Nicola's sister's work was her response. They must have paid for the pram. No, 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 I insisted. Santa had brought her both of them, my poor mother. In my secondary school class, there was a rake of Christmas birthdays, all those Paddy Day conceptions. <laughs> I felt lucky that my birthday fell between Christmas and New Year because it meant I was never in school on my special day. New Year's Eve has never held much appeal, way too much pressure for the perfect finish to the year. So as I grew up, my birthday the evening before became our big night out. The pubs were usually a bit quieter as people saved their money and energy for the end of year festivities. So we'd have our pick of places to go. All my friends would come in and we'd toast Christmas, birthdays and New Year all in the one night then onto Fibbers, McGonagall's, or the Roxy on Nassau Street with the late night dancing. My brother-in-law has a Christmas Day birthday. He even has the name to go with it, Noel. <laughs> My nephew is the 23rd, his dad is the 29th. As well as Tracy Ullman and Ellie Golding, I also share a 30th of December birthday with my friends Aoife and Neve. Myself and Neve call each other birthday twins, because we were born on the same day, in the same year, in the same city. When we realised this, we wondered briefly if we had shared the same ward. Maybe we were cop buddies. But no, we were born in different hospitals in Dublin. My entry into the world was more dramatic than my parents had wished for. I was due at the end of February, but arrived in a flurry of worry seven weeks early. My mother had been bringing my two-year-old sister the buggy and the shopping, up the few flights of stairs to the flat they were living in on Berkeley Street, when as she described it, she felt something drop. She managed to get a hold of my dad, who was at work, and they made their way to the Coombe Hospital, where she was given some kind of medication to halt the labour. Dad was sent home, having been informed that Mam would be kept in for the duration of the pregnancy. But I had other plans. When he rang that evening to inquire after my mother, Dad was told, Congratulations, Mr. Lynham, you have a new baby daughter. My parents claimed I was just too impatient to wait until the new year. 
At just four pounds, I was carefully placed in an incubator in the neonatal ward and kept in for several weeks while my lungs and tiny body gained strength and weight. When I was finally brought home, relatives were reluctant to hold me as I was so tiny. They were worried they might break me. Despite my early and dramatic arrival into the world, nobody broke me, and almost half a century later, I'm thankfully still here, looking forward to celebrating my 49th birthday this December 30th. After the last two lockdown birthdays marked in cold gardens, a safe two metre distance away from my friends, this year I'm hoping we'll all gather in my warm kitchen for cake and tea, and maybe some of my husband's special sherry trifle. I'm easily pleased these days when it comes to birthdays. Happy to receive joint Christmas birthday presents and or cast-offs. Send all those unwanted chocolates and candles my way. Actually, I'm just as appreciative of a text or a WhatsApp message, or even better, a phone call. Unlike tiny tears, there will be no crying, fake or real, from me on my birthday. I will instead be celebrating the privilege of getting older in the company of people I love. And for anyone else out there with a December birthday, I wish you the same feeling of contentment on your special day. times of candlelight. It begins with the boxes, unloaded like treasure from the attic. What has survived the past year? Was the careful packaging enough to save all from harm? The figures for the crib are silent, but speak of protection for us from those who have passed away. This nativity scene, a gift given for tradition to carry on, once rested in my husband's house when he was a boy. They say, while midnight strikes on Christmas Eve, honeybees in their hive will hum a psalm. Cows in their cattle shed will bow towards the east, while deer and the forests will bend down to their knees and the gates of heaven will be thrown open. Time is passing like the melt of snow angels, but I am able to lay out this crib once again, able to place a candle in the window to welcome those who will return home those who are always with us, those yet to arrive. Light a candle in prayer for the family's journey.
The last flight from Heathrow to Dublin is boarding. The cabin crew are full of dumb Christmas cheer. We're listening to a version of Driving Home for Christmas rendered on the panpipes. And it sounds sadly characterless, stripped of Chris Rhea's distinctive bronchial voice. I sit next to the window and I watch the baggage handlers feed the luggage into the belly of the plane. I'm very, very stressed and what I wouldn't pay for a large glass of, well, anything right now. A man approximately my father's age takes the seat beside me. We nod and fake smile each other, two strangers who've been randomly selected to sit next to each other and don't expect to be exchanging business cards by the time we disembark. I return to looking out the window. I notice that the rain has stopped. He does something then, this neighbor of mine, an act of unilateral aggression so blatant that it leaves me silent and shaking. What he does is this. He casually nudges my elbow off the armrest separating us. <laughs> so that my arm drops to my side like a boxer protecting his kidneys. And he claims the armrest for himself. The plane taxis to the runway. I put my two hands flat on my lap and affect an air of nonchalance as we become airborne, but it bothers me. There are insufficient words to describe how petty I can be in the battle for the airplane armrest. <laughs> and this man has breached a well-known civil aviation protocol known as first come, first served. A man has crossed a line. Actually, he's literally crossed a line, since I can now feel his bony elbow in my rib cage. And this incursion across the invisible border that separates our seats is the final straw for me. We cross Wales towards Anglesey, and I strike back. <laughs> I'm pretending to read Cara magazine. giving off the impression of a man who considers himself above the fray. But then, accidentally on purpose, I drop the magazine in the footwell in front of his seat. <laughs> Instinctively, he leans forward to pick it up for me. <laughs> abandoning his post and allowing me to reclaim the armrest. <laughs> he hands me back my magazine. I tell him I don't want it. <laughs> then he discovers that my elbow is back where his was a moment ago. 
And all he can do is sit there and silently brood on the fact that sometimes it's the smartest, not the strongest bull seal, who wins the stretch of beach. <laughs> he is a beaten man, or so I think. <laughs> when we're over the Irish Sea, I can suddenly feel his elbow prodding my forearm like he's testing a wall, looking for a weak point, a loose brick. He manages to find an inch of the armrest that isn't covered, and he pushes the lower, bonier part of his elbow into it. He has exposed a vital weakness in me. I don't like being touched by strangers, and he knows it. We are both wearing short sleeve shirts, and the sensation of his skin on my skin <laughs> causes my arm to retreat frigidly to the edge of the armrest until it eventually drops off again. He yawns then. It's a display yawn. And he stretches out his legs, making sure to occupy every inch of the space. Out of the corner of my eye, I notice that he's won the battle for the armrest with his other neighbor as well. This man has conquered on two fronts, Normandy and Stalingrad. <laughs> and now he sits there with his legs stretched out in front of him and his two arms cocked at the elbow like a big, smug, praying mantis. A cabin announcement says that we've started our descent towards Dublin. We'll be landing in a few minutes, but I can't let it go. <laughs> My neighbor is apparently sleeping. With less subtlety this time, I try to shunt his arm off the armrest, but the thing is immovable. Clearly, he's applying downward force, which suggests that he's not asleep at all. <laughs> he opens his eyes, leans forward, and looks at me. Then he looks out the window. Where are we, he says. That's Hoth down there, I tell him, which presumably means we're about to land. He asks me, do I live in England? No, I tell him, I was just working there for a few days. And he nods. I say, what about you? Because I'm nothing if not a good loser. He says he was visiting his son-in-law, who was married to his daughter, his daughter who died three years ago, today at the age of just 28. He says that Christmas time has never been the same for him since then and will never be the same again. And as Dublin Airport slips into view, I sit and quietly consider this lesson about the silent struggles that strangers sometimes go through and the petty things that we tell ourselves are important but aren't really important at all. Christmas was my mother's favourite time of year, and the rituals of what she called the true meaning of Christmas meant a lot to her. She had wanted a manger for our house for a long time, 
to remind us of this true meaning of Christmas, but we couldn't afford one at the time. So one day, as a surprise, my dad arrived home with the perfect little crib that he had fashioned out of some leftover material at work. He was a plumber, so he had access to these things. My mother was delighted with it, and it stood in pride of place in our hallway, just inside the front door. She lovingly filled it with some straw and figurines that I used to play with when nobody was looking. I wasn't supposed to touch the crib because it was made out of lead. You've heard of lead poisoning, right? But this was Ireland in the 80s we're talking about. I soon grew up and moved out and forgot all about mangers and the nativity story. I got a job, I got busy, I got engaged, I got unengaged, and then my mother became ill. She was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, so by the time I reached my mid-30s, life had taken on a darker tint. I found Christmas time hard then. Christmas has a habit of intensifying everything, of reaching in and pulling up your most vulnerable feelings. Grief, loss, loneliness, fear, they all come out of the hat as though pulled forth by a magician's handkerchief. So before you know it, you're trying not to cry in the middle of Marks and Spencer's fruit section because the song that was playing over the speakers reminded you that another year is over and your mother is dying and your career is not going as well as you'd hoped and you're probably never going to meet someone and fall in love and get married and be a mother. Christmas can be tough like that. It's as if someone has opened the pressure release valve on all of the feelings you've been holding in all year. But things can change in a heartbeat. Not so long after that, at the age of 36, I found myself sitting in a school hall full of junior infants' children who were putting on their school nativity play. I felt like an imposter, of course. I wasn't even a mother. But I had met someone, and now I was a tentative, long-distance kind of semi-stepmother to his little boys, commuting between Dublin, where I lived, and Galway, where they lived. So I was approaching the whole question of motherhood the way you might approach an unpredictable escaped animal. Very slowly, very carefully, no overstepping any boundaries, no sudden moves. As the children shuffled out on stage in shepherd's outfits, a baby doll being trailed along by a feckless Mary, I was appalled to find myself starting to cry. Not discreetly, but uncontrollably. <laughs> My tears flowing in a cascade, each new tear triggering the next one. I hadn't realized that the nativity was literally a tearjerker. <laughs> Looking at the innocent faces of the little children, lost in their oversized Santa hats and tinseled halos, their innocent eyes wide as they sang earnestly about on Lana Visa, I sat there mortified by the unexpected onslaught of emotion an interloper amongst the real parents who didn't seem to be crying at all. <laughs> I'm still not sure why I was crying that day, but I think it might have something to do with the fact that that day in the school hall at the nativity play was the day I first realized I was a mother. I had been so preoccupied with losing my own mother and so sad about giving up hope of having children myself I hadn't actually noticed that I had already become a mother to these little boys. I've since gone on to have two more children with my now husband, 
and those little boys are growing up very fast. My youngest child was actually born just a few days before Christmas. And while factually I know that that Christmas was marred by a Lego disaster, compounded by a lack of sleep, and me really missing my mother when I needed her the most, I also remember that year as the very best of times because we have been blessed with the very special gift of our baby daughter. I've seen many more nativity plays over the years, and these days I manage not to cry too much. I've even got my own manger now for our home, made from bone china this time, <laughs> which is much less resilient than lead, it turns out. But I still take it out every year to remind myself of the true meaning of Christmas. And that, for me, is hope amidst darkness, a bright star on a pitch black night, the triumph of good over evil, and the possibility that when all doors seem closed to you, your luck can turn at the exact moment you need it to. The hard-packed snow crunching beneath his feet was comforting, a distraction from the burning sensation in his fingers. It was very cold and clear, a white moon shone as bright as day. The tall trees lining the valley seemed black, suddenly menacing. But Josef Moore, dedicated assistant priest at St. Nicholas Church in Orbendorf, near Salzburg, Austria, rarely complained about anything, and particularly not then, having recovered after yet another bout of illness. Although sickly and destined to die young, Mu was pleased with his lot in life. From early childhood, he'd always found joy in music and had been a chorister and was a violinist. On the night before Christmas Eve in 1818, he had enjoyed watching a performance of the Nativity enacted by traveling players. It was to have been staged in the newly built church, but the organ was refusing to cooperate. A neighbor had instead hosted the event. Moore smiled at the image of a baby born in a stable. His own mother had provided for him through her needlework. His father, a mercenary soldier and deserter, had abandoned her before she gave birth. Humble beginnings were something the kindly priest understood. Musical talent had helped Moore secure an education, and in time, having been given a special dispensation, required because of his illegitimacy, he had entered the Catholic seminary in Salzburg. His proudest moment was being ordained at the early age of 23. Pleasant thoughts of the evening's entertainment and the atmospheric view of the snow-covered valley reminded him of some stanzas he had written two years earlier during his first official posting as an assistant priest. 
It was there in Mariafor, a place of pilgrimage inside the 12th century church dedicated to the Virgin, that a beloved painting had profoundly moved him. This likeness of a mother and baby, holy infant so tender and mild, is believed to have inspired his poem, which was to become one of the most famous carols ever written, one which would eventually be sung in more than 300 languages with 733 copyrighted recordings. American master singer-songwriter Paul Simon, when asked, was there any song he wished he had written, immediately replied, Silent Night. Shortly after Moore had completed his poem, he had become so ill that he returned to the less harsh climate of Salzburg, to Orbendorf, a village just north of the city, not far from the Bavarian border. Now it was the night before Christmas Eve. Father Moore began to hurry. Aware he needed a carol for the approaching midnight mass, he decided to consult his friend, Franz Gruber, the local schoolmaster. Gruber, five years older, and the son of linen weavers, was the organist and choir master at St. Nicholas. Moore knocked at Gruber's door, recited his poem, and outlined his request. Gruber listened, intrigued. In a matter of hours, despite the absence of a functioning church organ, a melody had emerged, a simple arrangement for guitar and voices. During that midnight mass 200 years ago, still not, Silent Night was heard for the first time. Mora played the guitar and the two friends sang while the choir came in to repeat the last two lines of each of the three verses. Mora was unworldly. He never objected to being sent from parish to parish. He donated his modest earnings to charity and would die of heart disease a week before his 56th birthday. Franz Gruber was different. He married three times and was twice bereaved. Thriving until his death at 76, he would compose various arrangements of Silent Night, including for organ and for organ and orchestra, as well as scoring other carols and masses. His name as the composer is far more widely remembered than is that of Moore as the lyricist. Some weeks after that Christmas of 1818, an organ builder arrived at St. Nicholas Church to repair the faulty instrument. Gruber tested the organ by playing Silent Night, so impressing the visiting craftsman that he asked to copy the music. Silent Night began moving across Northern Europe. By 1834, the famous Strausser sisters had performed Silent Night for King Frederick of Prussia, who then decreed his cathedral choir would sing it each Christmas Eve. 20 years after it was first sung in an Austrian church, Silent Night was sung in German in New York on Christmas Eve by another Austrian singing family, the Renner Singers. Moore had died three weeks earlier. Ironically, Considering the wealth of the British choral tradition, Silent Night was not translated into English until 1863. Created on an impromptu inspiration, Silent Night has often united humankind at times of darkness as well as celebration. By December 1914, the fifth month of World War I, a temporary truce was agreed when about 100,000 of the serving troops on both sides began singing Christmas carols. It was competitive with the Germans initiating it by singing Silent Night. Most British soldiers didn't recognize Joseph Moore's words, but they all knew Franz Gruber's tune. One of the many stories about that brief ceasefire tells of how one distinctive voice singing Silent Night soared out across no man's land. It was claimed to be that of the Wagnerian tenor Walter Kirchhoff, a star of the Berlin Opera, then serving as Crown Prince Wilhelm's aide-de-camp. 
on that Christmas Eve into Christmas Day in 1914, with goodwill among men on both sides, as food parcels and cigarettes were shared, the meditative simplicity of Silent Night, devoid of the anthem-like bombast of many carols, caused opposing sides to see the enemy as merely other men. Early into what would prove a far longer war than initially anticipated, that truce, the only one there would be, disturbed some leaders, yet delighted ordinary soldiers, many of whom would die once the fighting resumed. Joseph Moore's gentle sentiment in Silent Night, then as now, suggests a better, more peaceful world is possible. Merry Christmas.
Christmas concert. It's strange how intimate it feels to be, waiting in the wings with a stranger, as we, the last performers, sharing smiles and nods, pace up and down an area of six feet square like caged panthers. Our director's torch, the only light by which I, the next one on, rehearse my lines, and you, the final reader, dart your eyes at words on Joseph Moore and Silent Night. Still we pace and gurn at one another and whisper, you'll be fine, don't worry, with a shoulder pat, a squeeze of elbow, until suddenly my turn arrives, as if I am a parachutist pushed from dark to light. And look, the orchestra, the audience, like angels, glittery with necklaces and rings and bracelets, the herald announcing my name, a hush. And maybe heaven will be similar to this. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye into glory, and see the singers waiting to declare that all is calm and all is bright. I say my words and brush you as you enter to speak the final piece, your final piece, before that fateful drive in two weeks' time on the road that leads from Sheep House. Thank God our endings are concealed from us, the future just an intuition at best, and non-existent when we're in the present, released from what we feared so much. As now at curtain call, we lead the others out, and in a chain of hands we bow together and bask in grace the shining host before us, letting the final music echo in our souls. Sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace. Christmas Miscellany with the RTE Concert Orchestra and special guests was a mix of new and archive recordings from the National Concert Hall in Dublin. The scripts were Uncle Rudolph by Tim Carey, December Birthdays by Jackie Lynham, In Times of Candlelight, a poem by Denise Blake, Elbow Room by Paul Howard, Away in a Manger by Adele Coffey. Silent Night, Walking Through the Snow by Eileen Battersby. And to end, Christmas Concert, a poem for Eileen Battersby by James Harper. The music, all performed by the RTE Concert Orchestra, conducted by Gavin Maloney, was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, arranged by Brian Byrne and sung by Conor McKeown. Skater's Waltz by Emile Valteufel. The Wexford Carol, arranged by Cormac McCarthy and sung by Roisin O'Reilly. Have yourself a merry little Christmas by Hugh Martin, arranged by Bob Cerulli. Hush Be Still, a Christmas lullaby, written by Brendan Graham and Roisin O'Reilly, arranged by Gavin Murphy and sung by Roisin. And Still a Nacht, Silent Night by Joseph Moore and Franz Gruber, arranged by Paul Campbell, sung by Andrew Gavin, with the RTE Concert Orchestra featuring James Nash on solo guitar and conducted by Gavin Maloney. On sound were Kieran Cullen and Mark Dwyer. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.